If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. What was the interior design like in medieval castles? Why were so many of these fortifications built in Wales? And what was it like to actually live in a castle? In the latest episode of our Everything You Wanted to Know series, Charlotte Hodgman put your questions on castles from building techniques to England's first fortresses to Mark Morris, an author and historian whose books include Castles, Their History and Evolution in Medieval Britain. So Mark, thank you very much for for joining us today. We've got some um, great questions from some of our listeners and we'll be looking at popular Google searches as well on the topic of castles. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on. Great. Well, what we'll do then, we'll start off with kind of perhaps some of the most obvious questions. So what, what do we mean by castle is probably a good place to start. It, when you look up castle in the in the dictionary, in the Oxford English Dictionary, for example, um, it defines it fairly in a fairly limited way as a, as a fortress or a stronghold. Now, of course, many castles do serve that function. It might be their primary function that they, they're there for defence. But the other crucial element, as was pointed out, you know, 70, 80 years ago by R. Alan Brown, who's as a sort of, you know, godfather figure in terms of uh, studies of English castles in particular, was that castles had to be domestic. So it's a combination of both the fortified and the domestic. Um, so in, in other words, if you have a, a building which is, um, you know, like a, like a, a Napoleonic fort or something, which is only for um, uh, soldiers to sort of, you know, fight in, or, or only for soldiers to be in, rather than a castle proper, which has chambers, chapel, great hall, um, you know, uh, all the sort of things you need to live the good life. So it's not just living in the castle, but it's a combination of aristocratic residence and fortification. That's kind of working definition. I mean, the problem in in more recent decades is um, academic types, you know, more 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 sort of nuanced academic interpretation have said, well, hang on a minute, not all castles are actually defensive. I mean, some of some castles you find, particularly uh, the closer you come towards the the end of the Middle Ages, they're what appear to be bona fide um, fortifications are in fact more for show than for real practical defensive purposes. So it, it does become problematic. And I think it, there's a sort of um, a sense, it's a very sort of unacademic un- way to approach it, but there's, there's a sense of, in my head now, kind of like, well, you know, if it was called a castle at the time, it's probably a castle. You know, if people in the 14th century said this is a castle, then who are we to argue with them, really? I think you can start to be dismissive of castles if they are, for example, really Iron Age hill forts, Maiden Castle in Dorset, or they are, you know, baronial pads built in the 19th century by people who've made their money in industry. You know, then they're clearly, OK, you can call it a castle if you like, but it's not going in my big book of castles. As all, all of which is say hard to define, but if you if your starting point is a residential fortress or a fortified residence, then you're not too far off the mark. When do we first see castles in Britain? What's the first castle that that we know of? For me, um, I go with the traditional argument, which is that the Norman Conquest is the point when they first come into England. Certainly, it's a little bit more um, nuanced than that. In that, 
there are a handful of castles that predate the conquest by 15, 20 years. I mean, it might be useful, Charlotte, to actually go back a stage and say, when do we first see castles in Europe? Because, of course, there's still a very strong argument to be made that they're introduced in, with a, in a tidal wave with the Norman conquest. But they're quite novel in Western Europe as a whole. I mean, the, the origins of castles are sort of, you know, a bit like the migration of eels. It's kind of very hard to identify precisely. But um, if you said round about the turn of the first millennium, round about the year 1000, and in Western Francia, um, so what later becomes France, the earliest examples you'll find would be castles emerging along the Loire Valley or in Normandy, you know, these, these principalities that are becoming very powerful, whereas a century earlier it would have been the king of Francia or the emperor, who was very powerful. As Frankish um, sort of royal power collapses and you get these, these new principalities emerging and you get people lower down the food chain basically carving out little lordships for themselves, their weapon of choice is the castle. And, and what differentiates castles, by my definition, from what goes before is that they are private, and they are smaller than old school fortifications. So if you think about early fortifications, like I already said, Iron Age hill forts, or for that matter, Roman forts, or indeed the burrs, for example, of Anglo-Saxon England, which are you know large communal fortifications built that cover acres and acres and acres of land. Castles, by contrast, are, are considerably smaller, and they are for a lord and his household. And they're horses, of course, which are very important, but it's, they're still much, much smaller than the big old school communal fortifications that you see in Europe prior to that point. Now, that happens, as I say, around about the turn of the first millennium. So it's only, they're only, you know, two or three generations old when the Normans famously invade England in 1066. And the, it seems to come as a genuine shock to the English or the Anglo-Saxons. They've had one or two in the 1050s built significantly by the French friends of the last, uh, not the last, but the penultimate king of Anglo-Saxon England, Edward the Confessor. Uh, and they don't like them, clearly. I mean, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle for 1051 says the foreigners built a castle in, I think it's in, in um, uh, it's Herefordshire. That's the kind of, the sort of the, the drop of rain before the deluge. After 1066, there are castles galore, castles everywhere. And you see that not only in things like Doomsday Book, but in the other chronicle sources lamenting the introduction of castles. You know, they built castles far and wide throughout the land, oppressing the unhappy people, or something like that, is what the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says. That's, I mean, that's the short answer <laughs> after five minutes. The short answer is round about the turn of the millennium in terms of Europe, Western Europe, and then um, in, in, in a great tidal wave in the, the years after 1066 in England. And another popular kind of search query was about different types of castles. Are there distinct types of castles that we can see from, from this point? Yeah, I mean, they, they of course, they develop and they vary across the centuries. But starting off in, in 1066, and again, this would be familiar to almost anyone who's, who's you know, been to school in England at any point, there is a common or garden type that the Normans introduced, which is the famous Mott and Bailey. So the Mott being a, a great artificial mound of earth on which sits typically at first a wooden tower and then a, a lower shallower enclosure called the bailey which is is defended with uh, ditches and wooden walls wooden palisades uh, in which goes everything besides the tower so all your other buildings your your stables your chapel your great hall your your other chambers etc 
And they're probably about 75%, 80% of the earliest castles, the castles in the generation, two or three generations after the Norman Conquest, conform to that type. You get other castles where mots aren't built, and you get other castles where you get, you know, two mots. But the, the mot and bailey is your, is your sort of, um, as I say, your generic in early type of castle. Going forwards, you know, you have all kinds of variations introduced, you know, really from from... The, the very first in Europe, round about the turn of the first millennium, you have great towers of stone, great stone towers like Loch on the River Loire. And after the Norman Conquest, famously, you get towers like the Tower of London. There's one out in Essex, uh, Colchester, that started in William the Conqueror's reign. There's another slightly more insular var- variety, a hall keep built on the River Wye at Chepstow, which is, again, very, very early in the re- dating to the reign of William the Conqueror. So great stone towers from the very first. But with all of these castles, like any modern building site, you would start by building in timber, even if it's just to keep out the masses from the building site itself. And depending on your resources, depending on your financial means, it's up to you how much you want to convert those wooden buildings into stone. But from the start, 99% of castles are just made of earth and timber. And it's only as lords decide to invest in one or two particular locations where they really want to push the boat out. They really want to overawe people. They really want to entertain people. And they really want to you know, invest for the future that they will start to rebuild in stone. So that's when you get things like the Tower of London at the top end of the scale. Um, and then, you know, we'll talk about other things, I think, going forward. But then, you know, going forward into later centuries, you get things like twin-towered gatehouses. Um, you get a, a shift from, which is to say you get a shift away from great towers and onto the, the, the curtain walls. But, you know, perhaps we'll cover that in later questions. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, OK, so we've had, like I say, we've had some really good questions um, coming in. Tommy on Instagram wanted to know who built the first significant castle um, and whereabouts? Uh, well, as I say, again, it really depends on, you know, your definition of a castle and, you know, w- which sort of territory you're looking at. As I've already suggested a few. So I would say uh, along the River Loire, there's a chap around about the turn of the first millennium, the Count of Anjou, who's called Falk Nera. And he builds Loche in particular, and about a dozen other castles along the River Loire. So you could do a lot worse and start with him as, as an example of a sort of buccaneering um, Frankish lord around the turn of the first millennium. Um, but within a generation or so, or even at the same time, there are lots of other lords doing the same thing. So you have chroniclers in the in the late 11th century certainly saying, this is what lords do nowadays. You know, it's, it becomes a, a recognisable way of behaving. They go out and they search for particular locations and they erect these artificial hills, mots, and they build towers on them. And they sort of subjugate all the people in the, in the neighbourhood around the castle. In terms of England, which is much more in my, within my wheelhouse, as I say, the earliest ones would be the ones built by the French friends of Edward the Confessor in the 1050s. Um, so he has a, a nephew, for example, Edward, called Ralph, Earl Ralph, um, who's building them in, in that part of Herefordshire. Florence, uh, Florence Morgan on Instagram wanted to know, why are there so many castles in Wales? So the Norman Conquest takes um, castles to the fringes, very fringes of England. So you get castles built in William the Conqueror's reign, up as far as Newcastle and the Welsh marches. Um, I would say the principal reason is geography, is because, you know, whereas you could have uh, England is basically lowland for the most part, exception of um, of the Pennines, but basically low-lying land and you're controlling rivers and you're controlling open plains. Once you get into Wales, of course, it's much more hilly, much more mountainous and, and faster-flowing rivers, and you, it, it's territory that's more difficult to control. 
it's also it's it's outside of the being outside of England. England is a is a precociously advanced and centralized state and has a sort of form of royal governance which is much more intrusive and invasive in a way that Wales hasn't had. I mean, Wales is is a galaxy of competing rulers. So they too are building castles. I mean, the, the English, the, England's neighbours, the, the Welsh and the Scots, quickly cotton onto the fact that castles are being built. And within at least a couple of generations, they are building castles of their own to secure their territories. So it's, 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 it's geography and it's politics, really. And of course, Wales takes a long time to be conquered. It's not until more than 200 years after the conquest that Edward I finally conquers North Wales with his string of majestic fortresses like Conwy, Carnarvon, Harlech, Beaumaris. So, yes, a lot of a lot of a lot of contested territory, um, difficult territory to contest as well, leads to a lot of castles. Okay, um, PJ Mills twelve on Instagram wanted to know about the um, what was the influence of the Crusades on on castle building. I'm not a historian, particularly of the Crusades, but I have read books about Crusade castles. And if you went back more than a hundred years, you went back to the late nineteenth century. It was taken as as read that the Crusades. Um, influenced western architecture so you idea idea was that these western knights went to the the middle east they saw kind of like these these wonderful more advanced structures and they came home and started uh, um customizing their castles accordingly the problem is as people have pointed out in the last 50 years or so is that it's very hard to point to actual examples of architectural borrowing because I mean, if, for example, if it was something like round towers, I mean, there were plenty of round towers in England already because you could see Roman forts that had been left from 800 years earlier. So it is very hard. I don't think there's a physical example you can point to and say this is a clear example of borrowing. There is one, however, interesting exception to that rule, which is the word barbican. Barbican is, is, is a term used to describe a gate outside the gate. It's kind of an extra gate, you know, beyond. And that word, the that the, the word Barbican derives from. I think there's disagreement over which precisely which language, but it's either Persian or Arabic. It's it's like Bab Khan. It's like you know, it's, well, one of those words means gate. And you start to see Barbicans, you know, start to see people talking about Barbicans in the West round about the year 1200. So there is the the etymology of the word, the origin of the word, suggests that they had seen this in the East and gone. That's a good idea, you know, a, a, an extra gate out with the gate in order to stop people getting to the main gate and giving you a kind of killing zone within it. Um, and that that idea is is taken west and, and with it the word for it. So that would be my exception that proves the rule, really. Quite a few people, including um, Karina on Twitter, wanted to know kind of about life inside the castle. Um, so not so much about defence, but how do people live within the castles, bath and facilities, water and heat, cooking, that type of thing, the people who actually lived within the castle kind of complex? Okay, well, that's a good question. I mean, it's a, it reminds us, of the goes back to the point I started with, which is they're not just there for the nasty things in life, like, you know, sieges and and, uh, and whatnot. They are there to be lived in. And 99.9% of the time, they have to function as residences, and not just residences, but aristocratic residences. This is one of the things that gets my goat whenever I go to a castle, and um, often with school groups, because, um, you know, the, the person leading the group has to 
project their voice and you get to hear their their take on it and they'll i you know you'll they'll be saying now think how miserable it was and look how, how you know how dark it would be inside the castle and it's like well yeah miserable now my house is nice now it'd be miserable if i sort of ripped the roof off and took the floors out and left it for 700 years you know um, because it's everything all the things that make it livable have been have been lost whereas if you put the um the floors back in and you put the roof back on and you reglazed the windows and you plastered the walls again and hung the tapestries and put you know rugs on the floor etc it would be a lot more livable um and really that technology doesn't change what until the 19th century until you get the introduction of the gas lamp pretty much the level of creature comfort you can imagine existing in say a 12th century castle is going to be much the same as it would be in an 18th century aristocratic pad so you're going to have uh, in the best pointed castles, the best designed castles, you might have a well running up through the centre, so you've got running water inside the building and perhaps on all the levels. You might have water coming from a, a tank on the roof, which is piped into rooms below. So to some extent, you've got you've got fresh water, uh, you know, on demand. Not so much toilets at first. Initially, you know, I, th- I think there are toilets in the Tower of London, which is built from the late 11th century. But in general, you struggle to find toilets, at least you know, lots of toilets. As you move into the later Middle Ages, you will see toilets in every room. So you will, I mean, if you go to somewhere very late, like Bodium, which is built in the late 14th century, this is one of the things that sort of differentiates later castles from earlier castles, is precisely the level of creature comforts or the, the, the extent of creature comforts. So whereas initially you might have said, well, there's a toilet on the top floor, but that's really, you know, for the, for the king himself. Everyone else has to sort of, you know, go in a bucket or go outside. You will find with later medieval castles that every room has a fireplace, has a, a window with a window seat so you can sit and embroider or read in good natural light, and another door off to the side, which leads to a, a privy space, which is you know has a chute and, and a toilet, effectively. So, as I say, initially, you're probably talking in the 11th and, and 12th centuries. If you're one of the lesser members of a household, even a royal household, you're not going to get your own room for the night. You know, you're going to have some corner of the floor where you might bed down as if you were kind of you know sleeping on someone's floor with your own bedclothes or or the rushes on the floor as as you go forward into the 13th and 14th centuries especially people who are sort of more senior servants within the household are going to expect their own room their own bed you know so um it, it becomes more comfortable as time wears on but the thing to bear in mind you know, as a sort of like tattoo this on your eyelids, is that these are aristocratic residences from the start, and they and 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 kings and bishops and earls and even lesser lords. You know, they expect luxury in these buildings, and they were the most luxurious buildings that you that the society could produce in the in the Middle Ages. Jess Hughes on Instagram wanted to know who actually built these castles i suppose i could expand that is how how would you go about building a a castle where would you start yeah i mean going starting at the beginning with 1066 um i don't think the sources are clear enough for us to know whether any of the labor was forced or not i suspect in the circumstances of the norman conquest that some of the maybe quite a lot of the grunt work could be done by forced labor because a lot of it uh, is just an earth-moving exercise there if you're sort of digging ditches and, and creating mots. Um, so there's no reason to exhaust your garrison. Um, th- you know, having said that, I mean, if you've got, you know, 200 soldiers who you're hoping to protect, then and it's in their own interest. So it's very, it's, it's in their own interest, what I was going to say, to complete that thought, to sort of, you know, to, to dig in and build their own camp. 
So I, I think in the cases in the case of earth moving, I think you can sort of assume basically if it's kind of really hard, arduous grunt work, then you get anyone who you can coerce into doing it to do it, whether it's your your own squaddies or um, oppressed local people. But anything beyond that, whether it's woodwork, whether it's carpentry, whether it is stonemasonry, though both of those things obviously demand a lot of skill, then you need skilled professionals. And when, by the time you start looking at castles built in stone, and by the time you have records that detail the particulars, you can see that this is, this is um, highly trained, skilled work. The other thing, of course, is you need someone to design it all for you because it's not simply a case of putting one stone on top of another. And again, this is this kind of rubs me up the wrong way when I see people implying as much that there's anything crude about these buildings. They may look crude now, but there's an incredible... You know, if you see it like a... English heritage, and for that matter, Cadu in Historic Scotland, are very good in their guidebooks now, are providing you with cutaway drawings of these buildings. And you can see from their spiral staircases and the intricacy of their layout, these are well thought out, well designed buildings. Um, so you need a person who is going to, you know, sketch that out on sheepskins for you and, and measure out all the designs. So that person in the Middle Ages is called a master mason. And I think the thing that medieval historians are always keen to stress is that there isn't any division between the people doing the building and the people doing the designing. So it's not like nowadays where you have an architect who says, oh, I think it should be banana shaped, you know, and someone else goes and works out how to do that uh, from the initial concept. Master masons are people who started off, you know, on, on the factory floor as masons and work their way up to a design role. Brilliant. Okay. Crusading fish uh, wanted to know, obviously looking at Britain, um, when was the last time um, a castle was involved in a battle um, or successfully withstand a, a siege? I can't give you a final date because it would be well into the modern period. Um, and again, it, it sort of depends on what do you mean by a siege? Is it just a sort of a standoff or a skirmish? The general answer for this is the English Civil War. Um, so way beyond the Middle Ages. Big sieges in England in particular, there aren't that many uh, in the later Middle Ages. You know, I'm thinking of really big sieges that stick in my mind, things like Rochester in 1215. And the longest siege in England is Kenilworth in 1266. There are sieges in the later Middle Ages, but um, I'm, again, thinking of ones that go on a long time. Um, Harlech is besieged um, in the Wars of the Roses. But I think part of the reason that you don't get that many sieges in England in particular is that the state is just too powerful, so you don't resist the king. I mean, what would be the point of trying to resist a king like Edward I in England? Um, he's just going to crush you. But what happens when the when the king and the people fall out? What happens when royalists fall out with parliamentarians in the 17th century is castles that haven't been used for centuries, two, two or more, three or more centuries, are suddenly pushed back into service, dragged back into service. And their owners, or the people who occupy them, find that they are massively out of date and they have to bring them up to speed with the new technology of cannon and mortars that on the continent, you know, which is more war-torn in the 16th century, 17th century, they have been building up to the minute fortifications and they're all of a sudden trying to find engineers from from France and the Low Countries to advise them on how to modernise, you know, old hat fortifications like castles. All of which rambling answer is to say, I would say, you know, the 1640s, 1650s um, is the last time you see castle sieges on a grand scale 
uh, in in England. Hugh on Facebook wanted to know um, a bit more about the inside of the castle. So would the walls have been painted, whitewashed? What would it have been covered with? What would we expect to see in a castle? Yeah, again, a good question, which we, we sort of touched upon, but didn't go down to that level of detail. I mean, the main, as I say, the, the main point is luxurious. The main point is wherever you go, these are built by the richest people in society or built for the richest people in society who were very, very exacting and demanding. Uh, so if you look at things that have survived in better condition, like their manuscripts or their, their um, jewellery, they, they, they demanded the finest things, and it would have been exactly the same in their buildings. Um, so, yes, the walls whitewashed or plastered and whitewashed so you don't have kind of um you know bare masonry you have um paint uh, whitewashed so it's so white um in lots of cases the fashion in the 12th and 13th century certainly was to um trace or paint red lines on the whitewash walls as if it were made of large blocks about the size of about the size of my laptop screen or bigger um uh, so it looked like blocks of cut ashlar, you know, finely finished stone. So even if the walls themselves were built of sort of higgledy piggledy ragstone, you you white what you plaster it, you whitewash it, and then you paint it as if it is made of these monumental finely cut blocks. You can see that in, in certain examples. You can see um, traces of that um, going back to Chepstow in Wales. Uh, you can see on the upper floors of Martin's Tower there um, large chunks of, of original th- late 13th century plaster which have those red lines traced upon them still. Beyond that, you could decorate your blocks with little fleur-de-lis or dragons or whatever. Um, we've mentioned sort of wall hangings, embroideries, tapestries. They would be could be hung on top. But I think that one of the other things to say is it's, it's primary colours, primary colours. Colour itself is, is very highly prized. And... You know, we get used to an idea because we go around, say, even 18th or 19th century houses, and we think, oh, how subtle it all is, how understated the blues are and how subtle the reds. And, of course, that's only because they've faded for 200 years. And if you actually went back to the time when they were brand new, they would be sort of like absolutely, you know, um, stark primary colours. English Heritage spent a fortune on Dover Castle about 12 years ago, um, redecorating it as it would have been in the late 12th century when it was newly built by Henry II. And, I mean, you know, I still take people around there today and they're sort of struck by the vividness of the primary colours because it looks like kind of like the children's section of Ikea. You know, it's all reds and blues and greens. And it's like, well, they didn't, you know, they they wanted this colour in their lives because these, these, these pigments were hugely expensive. So um, that's if you want a good example of what they look like, if you Google Dover Castle Great Tower Interior, you will see that's the best modern approximation of how vivid it was. And just another anecdote off the back of that, they did something similar on a lesser scale about uh, 10 years earlier, so now 25 years ago, at the Tower of London. They got hold of um, uh, St Thomas's Tower, which is above Traitor's Gate, because it had been a kind of a a residence for some uh, high-ranking official who moved out. And they represented one half of it as it looks now, so they stripped it back to sort of its original 13th century trappings. And in the other room, the other half uh, of the chamber, or the other half of the tower, a separate chamber, they redecorated that chamber as it would have been. And the primary colours were so stark that they were positively offensive to visitors who refused to believe that anything in the Middle Ages could have looked that pristine. And so they sort of dirtied it up a bit. They sort of, you know, made the walls look a little bit grubbier, a little bit, uh, you know, darker, 
to meet people's expectations, which seems a shame in a way, you know, that it's our, our misconception of the Middle Ages that is guiding the interpretation now. Well, we've spoken quite a lot about the kind of interior and the kind of the, the luxury side of castles. What about defence? What would you need when you're building a castle in terms of defence? Any number of things. I mean, to begin with, so we started with Mott and Bailey's, so a great, uh, uh, the advantage of height. That's one. That's one of the main things. So you have your great mound and your and your tower on top, or if you're investing in stone, you just simply have your great tower. So height is is a major thing. Thick walls. I mean, if you by the time you get to building in stone, you know there's a, there's a certain sense in which they need to be thick. I mean, you might say this as, as a sort of revisionist argument. Say, well, you know, walls had to be thick just to support the weight of the building, stop it collapsing in on itself. But you know, these are really really hard buildings to take. That's very clear if you if you sort of move away from the architecture, which you can, of course, any number of interpretations if you don't look at the evidence. But if you look at what people said at the time in the 11th and 12th centuries, chroniclers, when people build things like Chepstow or the Tower of London, or um, thinking of one I read about recently, uh, the Gesta Stefani, very good on sieges in the mid-12th century in England. And it's talking about places like uh, Exeter Castle down in Devon. And it describes them as, you know, virtually impregnable. You know, there's this sense of this, this stone box which we cannot break into. Because at that time, the, the technology of attack is really quite limited. You know, you can, can't sort of run at it with your head. You can't throw spears at it. What are you going to do? Um, you can try hurling things, but they haven't yet invented the trebuchet. Trebuchet is a, not just a hurling device, but a, a, a throwing machine which has a counterweight to give it you know, to, to give it its power. Um, that only comes in around the turn of the 12th and 13th centuries. So um, attacking them at first is really, um, this is again something I've been reading about recently in uh, in the sieges of Stephen's reign in the 1130s, 1140s. It's very, very remarkable how, how, how many times Stephen starts a siege, invests a castle, and then gets bored with it. And I, I suspect it's not just whim. It's the fact that he has to keep his army outside it, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of men, hundreds certainly, um, feeding them, keeping them protected from the elements when they've got nothing to protect them. And, you know, after two or three weeks, people are going to get fed up with that. And so, uh, you know, whereas the people in the castle, providing they've got a well and they've got sufficient provisions, are going to be fine. So it's not really until you get into certainly the 13th century and the technology of attack catches up um, that... Uh, you're going to get um, it's going to be uh, easier to break into these buildings uh, you can always undermine them uh, i.e. dig under the foundations um, prop it up like you would a, a, a coal mine you know with pit props burn away the pit props that's what King John does after seven weeks of siege in um, at Rochester in 1215 um, but that's it's just it's such a huge investment of time and money and men um, to try and bring down a castle as strong as Rochester, that it only happens in the, in, in rare incidences. Um, and of course, you can frustrate mining by by constructing a moat. You know, you can't tunnel under it if it's water. Um, so it's it's um, it's a constant dialogue between the technology of attack and the technology of defence. If you look at the earliest castles, like say the Tower of London or Chepstow or, or Colchester, um, there's not. Besides a sort of a passive solidity, they don't have any of the, um, uh, I suppose, elaborations of later centuries. So you don't really get arrow loops until the end of the 12th century, crossbow loops, arrow loops. Um, you don't uh, get, you don't get kind of, you know, machiculations or, so it, it's, um, 
you know, there's there's constant kind of looking for how can we kind of make this place better defensible, you know, better defended. That was Mark Morris. His most recent book, The Anglo-Saxons, A History of the Beginnings of England, is published by Hutchinson. And if you'd like more from Mark on castles, then check out his book, Castles, Their History and Evolution in Medieval Britain. And if you'd like to submit questions for future episodes of our Everything You Wanted to Know series, then be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at History Extra, where you'll see all the call-outs for questions. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. Listener.